Welcome to Highlawn Baptist Church in St. Albans, West Virginia, where our mission is to know Christ and to make Christ known. For more information, visit us online at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. We're so glad you've decided to join us, and now we invite you to grab your Bible, if you're able, as we pray that you will be blessed by the preaching of the truth of God's Word today. One of the things that, um, Johnny, that I was really happy about um, regarding the campfire is that the family is coming back together as a family. And we're starting to experience that kind of fellowship that that erases the scars of being isolated for so long. And that as time progresses, we're going to find other ways and other opportunities to get together, to hug on each other, to love on each other, and to be the family of God together. Amen? And it's, it's time. It's time that the church admits that we have the ability to overcome anything through God. To claim His promises that not even the gates of hell will overcome the church. And Hylon is part of that. We're told in scriptures by Christ that the gates of hell, that, that on, the, on this rock, upon the faith that said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, upon this rock I will build my church, and not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. There are two things that I want you to remember from that as we go into our message this evening. The first of all, gates are not offensive. Gates are defensive. Now, the enemy thinks that he's already won the war. So he's put up the wall, he's put up the gates, and he doesn't want anybody to be able to get out. But our job is to rescue them, to bring them into the family of God. Not only that, but to disarm his own weapons, his weapons of loneliness, his weapons of hopelessness, his weapons of discouragement, his weapons of conflict, his weapons of... Isolation, trying to dismember the body of Christ. The church is called to rise up against it, and and we are. So let's claim the victory that he's purchased for us. Now, as we continue on, we're examining uh, the way that we put the three great commandments of Christ to work in our lives. The first commandment, of course, the first two, Christ himself quotes from the Old Testament, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your might. And second likened to it, love your neighbor as. And the one that we're going to examine today, love one another just as I have loved you. And by this they will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Here's the, the, the reality of that promise, and it's a, a, double-sided, excuse me, a double-sided sword. If you want to be good at evangelism, if you want to be good at outreach, if you want to be good at bringing people into the church, you've got to be the church. They notice how you treat each other. They notice when you're friends. They notice when you hug on each other, when you love on each other, when you're there for each other. People outside the church notice that there's something different about you because unlike any other organization on the planet, you actually living community together in every way that that suggests. Now, it used to be uh, that as neighbors, as literal neighbors, we used to borrow cups of sugar from each other, each other's lawnmowers. We used to have a relationship with each other, and it wasn't just about who needed what. It was that you'd see a neighbor such and such on one side of the street, and he'd be in his 
on his porch or whatever, and you'd go over, you'd sit a spell, and you'd talk. You'd have a relationship together. We don't see a lot of that today. If anything, what we see is a bunch of people self-isolating. We're comfortable in our own homes. We don't want to get out and about. And what we saw in the pandemic is it just exacerbated that tendency. Not only were we, we not working to live, but living to work, a lot of us, we were finding more and more excuses not to even get outside the house, much less talk to our neighbors. The sad reality of that is that spirit has invaded the church as well. One of the things that we learned this past week and uh, as we were looking at the West Virginia Baptist Convention, as it came together with its annual meeting, there was a sense of hopelessness and isolation that was creeping into a lot of our sister churches because of the pandemic and the fact that so many of us, uh, when we had to lock down, we were at full strength. And when we came back together, we were at 20% as best. 20% on average. That's the attendance rate that most of our churches came back to and are still actually operating at today. So that spirit of isolationism is still unfortunately alive and well in our churches. But the thing about it is we are called to overcome that. It is not good for a Christian to live by himself or by herself. It is not good to put up walls of separation within the body of Christ. We're actually taught in Scripture by James, the brother of Christ, that we are to not forsake the gathering of ourselves together, as many are in the habit of doing, but all the more so as you see the day approaching. In other words, the, the longer that you go as the church, the longer that the church age exists, as we count up decades, centuries, millennia now, as we march closer to the day of the Lord, we're not supposed to meet fewer and fewer times. We're supposed to meet more and more. The local church is the bride of Christ. And when we isolate, we diminish our ability to support each other, and we diminish our ability to come together and help our neighbors. What is, what is really frustrating is the fact that when the body of Christ comes together in its full strength, our joys are multiplied and our sorrows are divided. And that's not just a catchphrase, that's the truth. When we come together, for those of us who are enduring hard times, we endure them better when it's with the people that we love supporting us and strengthening us. When we're sick, when we're ill, when we're grieving, when we're sad, when we're experiencing hardship, we need each other. Every time that we miss a worship service together, much less community events together, <clears throat> we rob ourselves of a blessing by being a part of the body of Christ. And we also rob the body of Christ of a blessing that only we can give. Now hear me and write this down. You are tailor-made by God to make a difference in the church. Let me say that again. You are tailor-made by God to bless the church, to make a difference in the church. All Christians are called to be part of the body of Christ, no matter where they are. There's a bunch of people out there that you'll visit that will say, Oh, you don't have to be a part of a church to be a Christian. Well, then what are you baptized into? When you become a Christian, you automatically become a part of the capital C Church. That's the Church of God Universal, the Bride of Christ. 
But you are also called to be in a place where you can make a difference and other people can make a difference for you. And you are tailor-made, blessed by God, the Scriptures tell us, fearfully and wonderfully made in such a way that when we come together, you have certain gifts, abilities, talents, and knowledge that this church needs to do her job. So if we miss... And I understand there are times and circumstances where we're called away for business or we're sick or there are things that go on where our family needs us. I understand that. But if it's just a decision between your pajamas and going to church, you rob yourself of the blessing of being part of the local church, other people having the chance to bless you, and you rob the church of the blessing that you were designed by God to offer others. So it's a two-way sin. All that being said, the last couple of messages, we were, we were talking about showing love to others, loving the neighbor as the self, proclaiming love, being able to express to others when they ask us why we believe what we believe, we have an answer for them. More often than not, that's the way that we fit into the Scripture story. That's our conversion experience that we can share with somebody else. And today we're going to talk about demonstrating love. Focusing on the third great commandment, loving each other just as Christ has loved us. So if you would take out your copy of God's Word with me and turn to John 13. John chapter 13. One of the amazing things about the author, John the Apostle, is that in his book... He writes about the communion event. He writes about the Lord's Supper more than any other gospel writer. About a little under half of his gospel is spent uh, writing to us what Christ was teaching in the upper room. This passage is special and unique because this is the last time that Jesus would exercise his earthly ministry. If you all know anything, if, if you've had any teacher that meant something to you, you know this. That when a teacher gets ready to wrap up their sermon, or wrap up their teaching, whatever it may be, whatever course you're taking, that last button that they put on their lecture series, or that last sermon that they offer you, that's the one that counts. That's the summation of everything they want you to know and understand. The last teaching is important. This is part of Jesus's. As we read together. It was just before the Passover festival. And Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave his world, leave this world, and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Now, if you're following along with me in your copy of God's Word, I want you to underline a couple of things. They are very important here. First of all, a lot of us think of, of Jesus as merely a poor wandering preacher. And while it was true that he himself had, had subjugated himself to poverty, he was nevertheless a rabbi. Even the Pharisees give him that title. The people that persecute him call him a rabbi. 
So when it talks about his outer garments, we're talking about his robe, his sash, his shawl, his symbols of authority. As any rabbi would, even Jesus, he would have a shawl about him with a blue thread about it that identifies him as a teacher and that is set to remind everybody that he is a representative of God. To this day, if you ever see a rabbi in a synagogue, he will have what looks like a shawl around his neck uh, with white representing the purity and the righteousness of God, who is the guardian and the judge of the universe, and these blue threads all the way through it, sometimes in very uh, beautifully decorated designs. That is a tradition set back all the way to the time of Moses, and that blue cord represents the presence of God that we are never to forget. So what Jesus is doing basically is He's removing all vestiges of His office, all signs of authority, all signs of, hey, I'm better than you, or I have this station in life. Anything that might concern Him as being above them, as He rightfully should anyway as their teacher, much less as the prince of the universe, He now takes off, humbles Himself in other words. So he got up from the mill and took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that, he was, that was wrapped around him. He, excuse me, he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. You're not my servant. You're my rabbi. You're my master. You're my teacher. You're my older brother in the faith. You have this authority over me. Why are you debasing yourself? Why are you making yourself into a slave? <coughs> this is what the slave would do in the household. What the youngest child, if there was no slave, would do in the, the household. He was making himself, who, he who was the greatest of not only the twelve, but the greatest of all the world. He made himself into the meanest of all slaves in front of them. And Simon get, uh, Peter gets this. He doesn't really understand what Jesus is trying to demonstrate right now. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit within him just yet. But he realizes that he who is the greatest of all is now debasing himself. And he's trying to pick Jesus back up. He doesn't understand what's going on. But Jesus answers his, his mind, his concerns with the words, Unless I wash you, you have what? No part with me. And that strikes the chord with Simon Peter. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he'd finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, your rabbi, 
have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Heavenly Father, please open our hearts and our minds to your word as we examine ourselves in the light of your son's example. Help us to take heed from your word and make it part of us so that just as your son humbled himself before those who were his, his servants, Lord, may we humble ourselves in service to each other to demonstrate the love that you offer to us before a people who desperately need to experience that love themselves. For it is in the matchless name of Christ we pray. Amen. Now Peter says something that uh, if we just glance through Scripture we often overlook, but when a priest was anointed back in the Old Testament, he was anointed by a ceremonial washing and then followed by a sacrifice. And an anointing was applied to their head, to their ear, to the thumb on their right hand, and to the big toe on their right foot. And what this suggests is that you are to be wholly sanctified in your thoughts, your deeds and actions, your work, and your walk. Everything that you do, everything that you say, everything that you even think is to come under the subjugation of God and His righteousness. Be holy as I am holy. This is the challenge that God gives us. And this is what Peter is referencing when he says, don't just wash my feet, wash all of me. Make me entirely clean. Jesus promises him, with the exception of one of you, you're already on that road. So Christ is giving us in this demonstration, He's giving us an example of what Christian greatness really is. Christian greatness is not built on wealth. It is not built on prestige. It is not built on uh, public speaking skill. Or it's not built on charisma. It is built on humility. If one of you is to be the greatest, you must also be like the least of these. The greatest in rank is actually the servant of all. This is what Jesus demonstrates. He is the Son of God, and yet He lowers Himself to be a servant to those that He loves. A love for the church is something that goes beyond friendship. Is something else that He's trying to tell us. You're not, if you're part of a local church body, you're not just a member of an organization. You are a brother or sister in Christ, and you are due and are expected to have that same type of affection for your fellow members as you would for your own family. The agape, self-sacrificial love that Jesus is demonstrating here is basically telling His disciples, I love you more than my office. I love you more than my authority. I love you more than my ego. I love you more than all my provision, that everything that I am, I give my love to you. That's the definition of agape love. And it's the same kind of love that He challenges us to model for each other. That's the quality of love that we're supposed to, to demonstrate. 
So why did he do this in the first place? Why on earth? I know that this he he had he was answering a question that was on his mind. He was answering a question that the disciples themselves were churning over and over again. They were asking the wrong question. In Jewish history, you don't demonstrate what you know by your statements, you demonstrate it by your questions. Which is strange. When you when you see a couple of people even today who are rabbis talking to each other, trying to teach each other the lesser and the greater, you don't hear them necessarily making lectures like the way that we sermon today. You see them asking questions of each other. This is what the legal expert did to Jesus. What is the greatest of all commandments? That's an example of this. So Jesus hears and he knows the hearts of those that are his disciples. He knows the, the emergence of these pastors in training. And he hears them making this argument. In Luke 22, uh, Luke actually records this for us. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered the, the greatest. They're asking the wrong question. Peter wants to know, do I sit on your right hand side? Am I the one that has all the authority? I should be. I'm the big mouth. Open mouth, insert foot. That's Peter. Ready, fire, aim. John, on the other hand, is the disciple Christ loved. He was, and all, for all intents and purposes, he was his best friend, his confidant. Everywhere that Christ went, Peter, James, and John went along with them. But John was the one who from the cross looked at his mother, Mary, and told John, Woman, behold thy son, son, behold thy mother. He considered in that one simple statement, he took John the apostle on as his brother over the rest of his family, over those that were his kin. He said, you and you take care of each other. For, for all intents and purposes, that identifies him as his best friend. So John is wondering, hey, shouldn't I be the guy? I'm the son of thunder. Son of Zebedee. I'm the rich guy. I'm the guy whose dad owns a fishing enterprise. I'm the guy who has a business that he will inherit one day. I'm the guy that pals around with Jesus all the time. I should be the greatest. And then there's James, his older brother, who had the same kind of arguments. So they were having this dispute about them as to who was going to be the next in line, the big cheese, if you will. And Jesus, this was right as he was about to go to the cross. I want you to think about that for a second. This was right as Jesus was preparing to die. And he wanted to lavish them with his own love. And all they could do is argue about who's the better one. Adventures and missing the point. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. This is what Jesus is trying to demonstrate in action when he washes their feet. Instead, the greatest of you should be like the, the youngest, the least, the lesser in rank, and the one who rules like the one who serves. This is a radical difference from the way the world works. The people who are in charge are supposed to be haughty. They're supposed to be proud. They're supposed to be rich. They're supposed to be successful. They're supposed to be charismatic. They're supposed to have a huge following. Jesus says, this is not the way it is with you. You're supposed to be different. The person who heaven regards as the greatest of all of you will be the person who has a humble heart. The person who makes himself poor to make others rich. The person 
who debases themselves in order to lift others up. The teacher who wants to work himself out of a job to make sure that his students surpass him. Who is greater is the one at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? But I am among you, am among you as the one who serves and serves in the lowest possible position. You are those who have stood by me in my trials and I confer upon you a kingdom just as my father conferred one upon me so that you may eat and drink at my table and in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So there will be a day when you will ascend where God himself will reward you with a crown of righteousness. But this is not that day. That's a position that has to be earned while you're alive, while you're still here on this planet. And it's earned through ministry. The world tells us that the prime virtue, especially in the culture that we're in today, that the prime, culture, uh, the prime virtue of our society is self-importance. How much can you make a show of yourself? And that means that other people around you become a means to an end. They either provide you with a service. In other words, you see other people just as a function. Or there's somebody to be used and then discarded. In other words, that person is just an object. They are a favor to be repaid, just like the explorers of old used to bury caches of supplies in the Antarctic to be dug up later and to be used. Someone is not a person, they're a favor yet to be repaid. Something that is, is something that you can call upon later on. They're an everlasting debtor. A source of entertainment, meaning they're just a puppet. Or a means of self-promotion, meaning that they're an object of ridicule. Someone who is there so that you can tear them down. So that you can be built back up. That's what the world wants from its people. That's the culture that we live in today. But Jesus says, no, you're supposed to be different. The truth of the spiritual world, the, the eternal that which will echo beyond time tells us that agape love is the prime virtue. Not the self, but the ability of the person to sacrifice themselves and esteem others as greater. That is the prime virtue of the Christian walk. For we recognize that no one person can be greater truly than another because in Romans 3.23 we read that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We also hear in John 3.16 that God so loved the entire world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whosoever, no qualifiers, believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So all of us are fallen, feeble, fickle, finite, and frustrating before God. And yet God loved you so much anyway that He sent His only Son as a sacrifice to pay the debt for your sin so that you could have an eternal relationship with Him. And not just have a relationship with Him, but be considered His child at the expense of His own Son's blood. That's a powerful love. So there's none of us that are better than any other. We all have that fallen condition, and God has paid the ultimate price so that all of us may be lifted up. We read from the Apostle Paul that though we are many members, we are one body. That the church is more than just a collection of friends, more than just a, 
a group of job descriptions on a piece of paper that we are a family, to treat each other as such, and that every member is a servant to each other. This is a love that strengthens us. This is a love that binds our hearts together. It is love that makes us into a church and nothing else. The love that binds us in mutual affection, brotherhood, and service. What is the, the Christian flag's pledge? I pledge allegiance to the Christian flag and to the kingdom for whose Savior it stands. One brotherhood uniting all Christians in service and in love. It's a beautiful statement, very true. All of us are not just, not just a, it's not just an expectation organizationally, but it's an expectation of our Savior. That as He gave everything for us, so we should be willing, should the time arise, to give it all for each other and for Him. Paul writes about this, Ephesians 2. As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins. You weren't just condemned later on. You were dead now. Spiritually, you didn't even exist. Without the power of the Holy Spirit living within you, you are an incomplete person. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. In other words, the devil. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Paul's using this as an identifier of who's saved and who's not saved. If you're more about yourself and your personal pleasure than you are about your family and of God, then you're not of God. When the Holy Spirit comes in you and transforms you, this is one of the dead giveaways that you're a Christian, is that you love others more than you love yourself. What was that old pastor's joke? If, if, if you were ever put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? That's the evidence. Do you love others more than yourself? All of us also lived among them at one time. I'm sorry. We were all by nature deserving of wrath. You were all at one time in the same condition. But because of His great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Unmerited love. The definition of grace is unmerited love. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. It won't come to you in the form of a paycheck. The only reason God loves you is because He loves you. He created you. He sculpted you with His own hands and from the from the core of His being, He breathed the breath of life into you. You, each and every one of you, fearfully and wonderfully made from Him, are a person of eternal significance and divine worth. You are a bearer of the image of God. He loves you as His child to, the, to the, such a great extent that He Himself paid the price so that you could be with Him internally. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raises us up with Christ, seats us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in, the kindness, in His kindness to us through Christ Jesus. So the truth of the church is basically this. No one is ever in a supreme position. No one can earn the love of God. 
Because grace, you can't earn it by definition. Each one of us, though, is a child of God made in His image. And every one of us who has been saved, who has been empowered by the Holy Spirit, all of us are on a journey together in sanctification. Meaning with each passing moment, each passing day, each passing act of service, each passing prayer, we're being sculpted to resemble the Savior more and more until finally when we leave this earth, when He calls us home, when our race has been run, we will have been conformed to His image. For I am persuaded by this, the Bible tells us, He who has begun a good work in you, He will draw it unto completion. For the saints who are no longer in the pews next to you, remember that and take heed by it. Take heed by it. Those who have gone on are ones that Christ deemed, that's my image. That's my image. From many sinners, there comes many saints. From many gifts, many giftedness, many inspiring uh, powers given to us by the Holy Spirit, come one church. And from many last names, comes one family. That's who we have been forged into. So what Christ is trying to instill within our hearts by this teaching is what we call an attitude of meekness. Now there is a grave misconception in this world that meekness is weakness. And you've probably heard me preach on this before. Please write the following down. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power brought under control. Meekness is power brought under control. When someone is meek, it's not just that they're introverted. It's not just that they're um, self-isolating or unfriendly or that they are just unassuming and don't want to be noticed. That's not the definition of meekness. Paul tells us in Romans 12, verse 17, he gives us this definition and these examples. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Even if you have the ability to sabotage someone else's life, even though you have the opportunity to sin, to try to repay them for their sin, you can't do it. It doesn't work that way. Do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends upon you, live in what? In peace with everyone. Even if you have the strength and the ability to do these horrible things, I'm telling you right now, don't. Live in peace with everyone. You are ministers of reconciliation to this world. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. But leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. And let me give you this to put down in your notes. This is one of the reasons behind this. A lot of us just think that that means in order to be a Christian, you have to be a better person than the other guy. That's not what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying is that God should have taken out his vengeance on you, on each and every one of us. There is nobody who's exempt from the wrath of God because all have sinned and fall short. Okay, for the wages of sin is death. We all know that. But through Christ, 
we have the gift of everlasting life. So if you as a Christian tried to take revenge on somebody that isn't a Christian, what you're actually setting up is a, is, is a shadow in that person's heart that will turn it into a heart of stone so that the gospel cannot break through. That person is a potential brother or sister in Christ who has the same availability to the gospel as you do. And if you take revenge upon a perceived evil on that person, number one, it's God who assumes that authority. So you're putting yourself in the place of God. And number two, you're poisoning the well for that person ever coming to the other side and being a recipient of grace the way that you are. Does that make sense? Are you with me so far? So when, when Paul writes down, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, what he's actually saying is, that's not your place, but wait, because that person may turn around. And if that person turns around, that person could be a potential brother or sister. And let God do the work. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. During this, you will heap burning coals upon his head. You will purify him. You will weigh him down with guilt. You will give, excuse me, you will give him the difference that he needs to understand that miracles still happen, that you're one of them, and that Christ is at work. You will help be part of his purification if you love that person who has wronged you. Don't make someone into an enemy. Make them into a brother or sister. Do not overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is a radical difference from what the world teaches us. That is a radical change. One that we need to always have in mind. Weakness, by definition, is power under control. If we have the availability and the opportunity to do evil for somebody else, meekness says we will not do it, but we will stay subject to the will of God. Operate always under God's will. Number two, answer animosity with kindness. And as Jesus says, as quoted by Paul here, that's like heaping burning coals over top of the person's head. Not only will you convict them, but you will give the Holy Spirit room to redeem them, to purify them. Conquer them through friendship. Far better is it to turn an enemy into a friend than to deepen them into being another enemy, a continuing enemy. Forgive and work for reconciliation and always see God's image in everyone. That's the difference that the church makes. So this is the final lesson that Jesus is giving them before he marches to Calvary. This is the last opportunity that he has to reach them before his sacrifice. The Apostle John, he's actually giving a commentary on his own gospel in his first letter. He writes to us, John chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, verse 13. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. This is the hallmark, the fingerprints that you're a Christian. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. As Jesus himself said, if you, you've heard it said... Uh, Thou shalt not kill, but I tell you, if you even so much as hate someone else, you've committed murder in your, in your heart. 
Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. John's picking up on that. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If you had any doubts that what, I said, what I've been preaching is scriptural, underline this in your copy of God's Word. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. And I don't think that that number is a coincidence. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech only, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and that we have set our hearts at rest in His presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and that He knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, in other words, if we are found to be without hatred within us, we have confidence before God and we receive from Him everything that we ask because we keep His commands and do what pleases Him. And this is His command, to believe in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as He has commanded us. This is who we are as a church. This is who we are commanded to be. People with a radical difference in the way that we live our lives. The world tells us that if someone does something to you, repay them in kind. In fact, it's glibly often said, do unto others before they have a chance to do unto you. But Christ tells us that through our conduct, our conversation, and our character, we are to be completely different. That if someone has set themselves up as an enemy, don't fight back. Love that person. Do what you have to do to take care of your own, but love that person. And as a church, never see one another as job functions, as objects to be exploited, as people who serve a function. See each other for who you truly are, who Christ made you and redeemed you to be. Brothers and sisters, all on a level playing field, but all saved by His grace from certainty of damnation to certainty of everlasting life. This is His last commandment to us, His last lesson before His own. Love one another just as I have loved you. And by this, they will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. A couple of weeks ago, I gave you the illustration that uh, <clears throat> uh, more often than not, the shift that people don't like to work in a restaurant is Sunday right after church. Most complaints, least tips, and by far the worst attitudes. What change would it be in that person's life that serves you? If you stop them and said to that person, we're about ready to bless the meal, is there something that we can pray over you for? 
or if you ask specifically to speak to the manager who's probably already ripping what little hair he has left out of his head and tell him, I want to brag about your staff for a second. They've taken such good care of us. Do not answer evil for evil. Not answer evil with good. And if someone does good for you, recognize that fact. Be hearty in your approbation, lavish in your love. And if they see that difference in you, if they see the people of God who they can tell are from a church coming in and laughing, having a good time, not backbiting about brother so-and-so or sister such-and-such who they excluded from this table, but if they hear them laughing and having a good time and, and celebrating their family together, they see that. If they're blessed by you and hear that you're asking a blessing for them, they see that. If they're expecting condemnation and instead they receive a blessing, that's something that they will remember. And when they ask you, what makes you different? When they ask you, these other jerks around here are being, well, jerks. Why are you different? When they ask you, that's your opportunity to say, I'm glad you asked let me introduce you to the person that made the difference in my life. And all God's people said. Heavenly Father, we open our hearts to you this morning and ask you for forgiveness for those times that we have not loved you first above all, when we have not loved those who are made in your image the way that we should. For we have not loved our brothers and sisters in Christ. Forgive us, Lord, and use your word to help to sculpt us into a people who will display that difference, who will put those daily miracles on display for you. Help us to be the people that you've called us to be. Sculpt us and make us after your will so that when others see us loving each other, fellowshipping together, teaching each other, Lord, may they see you and your spirit at work. And may that spirit cause them to ask, how can I be like that? And give us hearts that are prepared to give that answer for the hope that we have through you. Lord, if there be any within the sound of my voice that have yet to come to know you in a free pardon of sin, who have yet to experience that love in its fullness, if there are any who um, just need a special touch from your hand because of the pressures of this world that are, that are taking their toll upon their lives. Lord, if there are any that are burdened who want to be greater for your kingdom, who want to be your servant, who don't know how, who are being called to more. Lord, whatever the need is on any heart for rededication, for renewal, whatever the case may be. We open this time now to you. We open our hearts now to you without any reservation. Bring forward all that you would have just to touch your hand and to know the God who loves them. For it is in the matchless name of Christ we pray.
Amen. Thank you for joining us at High Lawn Baptist Church. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. At High Lawn, we believe that when you love God, you share His Word. When you love others, you spread the gospel. We would love for you to join us next time, and if possible, to join us in person, to contact or learn more about us, to donate to our ongoing ministry, or most importantly, to learn about the salvation offered to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Visit us at highlawnbaptistchurch.org. Once again, thank you, and God bless you.